This week on the New York Public Library podcast, live from the NYPL welcomes three leaders of the craft beer movement. Brooklyn Brewery co-founder Steve Hindi, joined by Kim Jordan, New Belgium Brewing Company CEO, and Charlie Papazian, founder of the American Home Brewers Association, recounts how craft brewers have forever changed the way the world experiences beer. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org. So, Steve, I, I, I thought we would start with these bottles mm-hmm. you brought today. I remember when I visited the Brooklyn Brewery, you were particularly taken by your own collection of bottles. Yeah. They somehow inspired you. They nearly have the sex appeal of the inanimate. And um, I'd like you to, in some way, talk to us about what these bottles are. Maybe you want to hold one in your hand and fondle it a little bit. You know, uh, Paul, I have a collection of uh, New York City brewery bottles, mostly from the 19th century. And I have about 80 different breweries uh, in the collection. Uh, This is the Otto Huber Brewing Company, which uh, uh, the buildings still exist in Bushwick. And actually, our first warehouse was in this old brewery back in 1980-87. It was a very scary neighborhood. Uh, Practically every morning when we came over uh, to open up, uh, there was a, a newly... A burned, stolen car right across the street, and truck drivers refused to come into that neighborhood after dark uh, because of the crime. Uh, and now, of course, Bushwick is uh, a thriving community. The famous restaurant Roberta's is about three blocks from that site. And uh, the old Otto Huber Brewery, uh, now there's a young man there with a beer garden and he hopes to start a, a brewery uh, in, the, in that site. The other bottles, I think the Schaefer what, what, what Brewing date, Company. What date would that be? Uh, Otto Huber, actually the dates are on the building. There are uh, 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 barrels uh, on, on the building with the dates 1875, 1885, with the different expansions of the brewery. And there are incredible caverns under that brewery, uh, stone caverns, uh, 30 feet from uh, the floor to the ceiling, where the lagering tanks were back in the day. And that's actually part of the old, uh, 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 it was called uh, Brewer's Row. There were 11 breweries in a 10-square-block area uh, over there. It was an inspiration. Talk to me about the three other bottles. Well, the Schaefer Brewery is there. It was the, one of the biggest breweries. Which that, one is it? You, I want the, you to touch that's it. That's the amber bottle. This one. The Schaefer Brewery uh, closed in 1976 along with Rheingold, and that was the end of the New York City breweries uh, until uh, we came back with the I brewery I was about to say, until you came later. along. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the two others? I don't know the uh, two others. You yeah. don't? Um... <laughs> George Kramer, uh, Havermeyer Street. That's in uh, Williamsburg. And, uh, so you know nothing about it? No, not no. really. Okay. Uh, and this one, Conover Street, is over in, in Bushwick. That was really the heart of the New York City brewing. 
1898, when Brooklyn became part of New York City, there were 45 breweries in, in Brooklyn. And uh, the population was much smaller than it is today. What, what do these uh, bottles inspire you as a sense of history, a sense of... I mean, why are you so proud to have this collection? I mean, well, it's one of the very first things I remember when I came to the brewery that you showed me. Yeah. You know, a lot of people say, now there are 2,800 breweries uh, across America, and there are 2,000 breweries in the works com coming online. And a lot of people say, how, how can we absorb 5,000 breweries? But you know, before Prohibition, there were 2,000 breweries in America, and the population was like 40 or 50 million. Now we're 325 million people. I don't think it's a stretch at all to think of uh, 5,000 breweries in America. But, but what, and what these about bottles, the, yeah, looking the, the bottles? I want the bottles. I want, also, I want you to talk to me about the bottles. Also, you look at the size of these old breweries. Yeah. I mean, Schaefer was a big brewery, a two million, million barrel uh, brewery. But a lot, a lot of the other breweries never got beyond 1,000 barrels a year, 5,000 barrels a year, you know, much smaller than Brooklyn Brewery or, or Kim's uh, Brewery. And you look at that and you realize the brewing industry has always attracted uh, dreamers and, uh, you know, people who just were in love with beer. And, and uh, uh, for them, uh, it was a wonderful dream to, to start a brewery. And I think that's what's happening all across America today. Well, um, it's kind of a back to the future thing. Effect. Um, well, well, we'll talk about the back to the future in a, in a moment. Uh, before we go there, I'd like to talk a little bit about what the three of you thought, saw before coming here to, today uh, to the stage. We showed you um, George Washington's recipe for small beer. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd like to actually read it. Um, to make small beer, he says, take a large sifter full of bran hops to your taste. Boil these three hours and strain out 30 gallons into a cooler. Put in three gallons molasses while the beer is scalding hot, or rather drain the molasses into a cooler and strain the beer on it while boiling hot. Let this stand till it is a little more than blood warm. Then put in a quart of yeast, if the weather is very cold, cover it over with a blanket and let it work in the cooler 24 hours. Then put it in a cask, leave the bung hole open till it is almost done working. Bottle it that day, week, it, that day of the week and brew it. I, I wonder to your mind, Kim, how would this beer taste? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have a bit of a spoiler with that. I've heard people have tried to make it, and it was terrible. Um, so we'll start there. What I thought of when you were saying that, though, was molasses. Sometimes beginning homebrewers will start with what's called malt extract. And really, molasses is kind of a form of malt extract. So even George Washington was cutting corners in his beer brewing <laughs> I think prowess. it's good that uh, he didn't quit his day job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, do, Charlie, do you know what bran hops is? I don't know. it sounds I, like a mix of I don't know what bran hops, hops are. There must have been a term used in those days. You know, I think having viewed that yeah, and, and, and reading the, the, the description of how to make that, I think any home brewer in their typical mind would 
view that as a challenge to read that recipe and they would immediately try to make it themselves. Yeah. I mean, that's the spirit of, of home brewers. Done that. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're either going to abandon the efforts or they're going to improve upon them, one or the other. And Did you know about this recipe? I had heard of it, yes. I've heard of it and I've seen it printed elsewhere, but never seen the original never transcript. Seen the, no. No. We wanted yeah. to we wanted handwritten to, uh, transcript, in, it was really we wanted to inspiring. impress you in the rare book. Yeah, we wanted to impress you with that. We have a very large <laughs> um, collection of menus also, which Good one work day you one did. day one day you should come back and see it. Steve, you you submitted to me a quotation that you very much like, which I'd like you to unpack. You were talking about dreamers of Samuel Johnson, um, co-executor of Henry Thrall's will, commenting on the auctions of Thrall's brewery. He says, we are not here to sell a parcel of boilers and vats, but the potentiality of growing rich beyond the dreams of avarice. I love that quote. Why? (laughs) Well, I mean, that's part of the... uh you know, that's part of the wonderful dream of uh, starting a brewery. Uh, you know, uh, I, well, first of all, I love beer, and I've always loved beer. Uh, and when I traveled in Europe and, and saw what beer could be in Germany and, and the UK and Belgium, uh, you know, I, it just opened my eyes to this incredible rainbow of flavors and, and styles. And uh, coming back and sitting at my desk at Newsday, where, which is where I was working at the time, and uh, dreaming of starting a brewery, I mean, it just, it just seemed like a, an impossible dream. Uh, but, the, you know, of course, today it's an impossible dream that's been achieved by 2,800 people all across the country. How do uh, you explain, I mean, how do each one of you explain this incredible boom from from 40 breweries to 2,500. I mean, I've read these numbers, 25 or 2,800, with another 2,000 in the works. What, what explains this, this level of involvement and passion? I think that um, Michael Pollan spoke at our Craft Brewers Conference last week, and he, and I'm surprised I hadn't sort of identified craft brewing as perhaps the first, but he suggested that craft brewing may have been the leading, on the leading edge of um, our enthusiasm for food and um, provenance and, um, and craftsmanship. And that's a big part of American culture now. I think it's a big part of culture in other parts of the world as well. And I think that um, it's also beer. Which, so beer is really the oldest industry, and um, it, you know there's this archetypal, you know, part of our DNA that we have about it. So really, you, how so? What does that mean? I say that because I talk to people. I've ta- you can imagine I've talked to thousands of beer drinkers, I imagine. and they often have stories about. Um, this kind of beer was my father's beer and this kind of beer gives me a headache and I don't like this beer but I really love that beer and my grandfather loved and there's just sort of this this I can only describe it as something that sort of lives inside of us about certain things and I think one of them is beer and beer is a, a memory we make resurface yeah I think so 
And so you combine that with our new in, newer interest in, you know, who makes the things that we purchase and that we eat. Um, Which is what Michael Pollan would be so interested right? in. Right. Um, and I think that that's a recipe for, you know, yeah. an exuberant explosion. How do you explain? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say I like your socks. Well, I they're don't great. Know. I mean, you I, see his wait, socks, Brooklyn Brewery socks. I hope you had, I, I had, you, you had not noticed. Those well, very nice. I want to show them to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's the first, first time fashion no, show absolutely. up on stage. Well, you asked the question, what's going on? And, and, and the way I often perceive what's going on right from the start is continuing to this day. And in reference to... Uh, part of the title of Steve's book, you know, the revolu aspect of revolution. Um, you know, revolution is kind of a, a sudden change of something that transforms a paradigm or moves thoughts from one way of thinking to another. And to me, that sudden change happens fundamentally in each person's mind, the beer drinker's mind, everyone out there. There's some event, some incident in your life where you had a revolutionary change in your view of beer. And that's what is fundamentally going on. It's not just about the brewers deciding to go and build a brewery. You have to have people drinking the beer and having the passion. I mean, the passion that's out there today is fundamentally developed and nurtured by the beer drinkers. And I think we've done, a, you know, every the community as a whole has done a great job of putting all that community and pieces together to nurture the revolution one person at but, a time but, on you know, an ongoing Charlie, basis. Charlie, you say this very modestly. I mean, your statements are very modest, but in a way, you, as I understand it, I mean, I, I, I think I will, I will try to push us on the notion of if it's really a revolution. But before we get there, you in, in, in some way have been the person responsible for creating in some form or fashion that, if we w are wishing to call it that, that revolution. You wrote a book which changed the landscape. I think two million people bought the book, if not more. And it created an, uh, um, uh, an industry now that is extremely wealthy. So in, in some way, when reading this about you, I, I was reminded of what uh, Alexandre Dumas, the writer of The Three Musketeers, said. He said that he, he was responsible for giving thousands of people jobs, <laughs> um, you know, printers mm -hmm. and people working in the paper industry, editors, The Three Musketeers. You know, he was in, in a way a, a, a proto-small capitalist. He was helping many other people. And in a way, your book brought that revolution about. I mean, how would the landscape look differently if, if Charlie hadn't <laughs> written that book? Kim. Yeah, in the absence of it's, um, I, it's hard to even fathom that. I would say that there, there was, though, a certain leap of time. And this is, I mean, I think Charlie is certainly um, the catalyst for a lot of American beer culture. There was a moment in time, though, where the risk of doing it, we didn't ever think, well, you know, 
should we do this? Are there enough beer drinkers out there that we can? You didn't. It was more, we're doing this because this seems really cool and we can always <laughs> go back to our day jobs. And what if we never did this? The big, the big motivator was what if we never did this? Yeah. We would feel so sad. And I've heard that story from many, many brewers mm -hmm. who, yeah, when people say, you know, did you do this because of all of the success you could have? I've never heard a single one say yes. They all say, I did it because I love beer, and it seemed like such a fun thing to be a part of. So yeah. there's the part of the dreamer in some way. It was Absolutely. the fun part. The pa I mean, the personal enjoyment. We, we derived right. from doing something that we, saw, we thought or, or we observed that other people enjoyed and appreciated. I mean, you must have been thinking when you were in the, in the earlier in the Pre, basement. Yeah, your homebrewing days that people were trying your homebrewing. What was their reaction? Um, that was always really good. Although when we started making some of our Belgian styles as homebrews, we went to a bluegrass festival with a bunch of Abbey Ale, which is a Belgian double. And it got to the point where Jeff was like, I'm not going out there again. You have to go out there. Because people would be like, this is kind of weird. Um, uh, what, yeah. Tell me why. What, what because, was weird about uh, it? Well, a Belgian double in particular is a very estery, flavorful, cloves, bananas, malt. Um, it, you know, it kind of reaches up and grabs you and spins you around a bit. And, um, and people were not ready for that. Yeah. So, but we didn't say, ooh, bad idea. We should stop this whole thing. We said, well, they'll, they'll learn to like it eventually. <laughs> and they did. Yeah. I, I had the same experience when I started selling Brooklyn Lager in New York City in 1988. A lot of people uh, practically spit it out. You know, they said, my God, that's so bitter and dark. You know, why don't you make a beer like Heineken? <laughs> I said, well, you know, Heineken does okay with Heineken. You know, I'm doing something different. Uh, and it, it's amazing to me, 25 years later, Brooklyn Lager is considered uh, kind of an entry-level, very accessible craft beer. People know what craft beer is today. 25 years ago, they didn't. It was a shock to the system. And by the way, Charlie's book is The Complete Joy of Homebrewing. <laughs> Being an author, I, I, I know <laughs> Thank you, I, Steve. I want to plug, it, <laughs> plug the author's book here. <laughs> well, I, I might... And, and I, actually, Char, I, Charlie was teaching homebrewing in Boulder, Colorado in, in like the 70s. In the 70s, And sure. you started doing these parties up in the foothills of the Rockies, yeah. right? And, and I, I really think that sense of community that you built there... Uh, became the, the sort of nucleus of the Great American Beer Festival. I mean, right from, uh, the, from the living room classrooms that I had, I was observing that there was a community that developed from the, the, the students in the class, and they would always linger around. They'd purposely flunk out of my classes, so they'd have to retake the class. <laughs> <laughs> they'd come back for graduate study. Um, and then, you know, the community of the, this beer and steer, we called it, it was just purely a homebrew. Uh, How much did it have to do with the counterculture? Counterculture? Well, the counterculture was going on, and it was illegal in those days. Uh, so that kind of, for a lot of people, that made it more fun. I imagine. Uh, but, you know, an interesting story, and I think you mentioned it in your book, Steve, that there, I had an ATF agent actually take my class once because he... he 
they were, he must have, his boss must have said, go check this guy out. He's getting publicity in the, on television and in the newspapers and it's illegal. Go check this guy out. <laughs> well, I, I knew who he, what he was representing because he was the only guy in the classroom wearing a white shirt and a black skinny tie. <laughs> everybody, had tie everybody else had tie-dyed wear. Um, but he came for a few classes and I emphasized, don't, it's illegal, don't sell it. Don't sell it, don't sell it. And they'll leave you alone. And besides, if they busted me, it, just, it would have just popularized the hobby even more the way I figure. How valid, honestly, do you think the word revolution is in Steve's book? I mean, is it really a revolution? It's a word well chosen. Yes. Yes, I... I um, it's, okay, so... It's not, you know, it's not a violent revolution. It's a revolution of taste. Uh, it's overturning uh, a different order of beer. What caused me to stop and think about that was that Charlie said it, that a revolution is something that happens quickly. And I think there has been um, certainly there was a quick part of the initial phase, but it was pretty nascent. So it wasn't really, I don't think it had enough powder under it for kind of explosion, explosion really. So um, I'm, I'm searching for another word well, that the, still the, has, you know, some grit to it. So in, in other words, by saying that you, you're somewhat on the fence whether the word revolution I think is... I, I love Steve's book title, but I'm, I'm going to think about it. I mean, I, I, like to think of, I like to think about it as the long span, the time span. It's an evolution, and it will continue to evolve. But like I said earlier, in the minds of the beer drinkers, there's new beer, beer drinkers discovering craft beer all the time. And for every single person who discovers craft beer, that's a revolutionary change. You know, and that you, will continue. When you, when you use the word revolution uh, uh, in, in the way you're using it, which is the second time now, I'm thinking more that you are, you're actually speaking about revelation rather than <laughs> revolution. Um, That's a good catch. Yeah, but if you want to sell books... <laughs> I like my O's. <laughs> No revelation. I don't revelation. quite. No, I don't. Uh, you know, no, 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 too, no, 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 uh, I didn't. I mean, no, no, you, you, no. It takes me back to Baptist church. The, the, the you know, tent. In, in I, I, but I don't mean it. I don't mean it in terms of revelation in a in a religious context. The revelation you have when you discover something new, you discover a new taste. And I um, think that is more of the energy of it. Um, people who used to say, we've all been to dinner parties where people way back in the day, oh, no, I drink wine, you know, or you're going to serve beer as the primary, you know, drink at the table. I don't, I don't and, drink beer. I don't yeah, like and, and that is going away. And I was talking with someone today that 70-year-olds are saying, you know, oh, I bought some of this and I bought some of this because I thought it looked interesting and we could try it. So where 10 years ago they might have said, that's too strong, it's too I'm not weird. Try it. it's, so I th there is some evolution. And, 
you know, I'm warming up to Revelation. <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm, like I'm ever so Write pleased. your own book, Paul. Uh, pardon? <laughs> pardon? What did you say? <laughs> Write your own book. Well, you, you know, you're not the first person to tell me that. Um, someday I'll come to you and ask you to, when, I, when the book is written, to help me with the title. Tell me this. Um, how should we define, because you, you said it's, everybody knows what it is, but I'm not sure that I know. Um, I'm quite sure that I don't know. Um, how should we define craft beer? Um, Charlie, <laughs> you, you start first. Charlie, you're the first one to uh, Is Benji actually, out there somewhere? He is out there, yeah. You're the, hey! You're the first one to define it, actually. Yeah, well, and the term microbrewery was created uh, by your people. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, just like the cover of a book, you try to differentiate that book from all the other books. And with craft brewers, there was a different spirit and a different way of approaching beer and making beer. And how do you define that? And in the you early... Def you define it by what it isn't? Is that what you're saying? No, not what it isn't, but what it is. And in the early days, they were microbrews, microbreweries. But as the industry evolved, actually evolved, and the, the microbreweries, the very small breweries, grew to be larger small breweries, um, they weren't micro anymore. So how do you... They, but they, the spirit of what they did and why they did it and how they did it and the beers that they made um, were something unique from, obviously unique from what the larger beer corporations make in general and, and that are popular. So the, the, the whole point of that exercise of defining who we were was essential to differentiate the, not only the brewing companies, but the brands of beer that are on the shelf. And as an association, we don't try to define craft beer because that's in the minds, we figure that's in the minds of the beer drinker. They're going, they're going to determine what they consider a craft beer and what they don't consider a craft beer. But craft brewer is small and independent and traditional, and that specifically defines um, the spirit of what differentiates um, this revolution and ongoing um, evolution that and revelation, but but but, revelation. but 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 but, <laughs> but quickly, when you say small defines, I'm I'm sort of struck because I I I read that the Brewers Association, which is run by you, Charlie and Stephen Kim, I believe you're both on the board, recently changed the definition of what craft beer is from two million to six million barrels. I mean, I can't even quite imagine what that is, but it doesn't seem as though that is necessarily small. Um, so I'm wondering... You, you have you know, to see it in, in the context of the industry that, that we're in. Uh, you know, Anheuser-Busch InBev uh, sells close to 100 million barrels of beer a year. In this country, let alone in the rest country, of the world. Yeah, around the world, it's, it's you know, hundreds of millions of barrels. Uh, Miller Coors sells 60 million uh, barrels a year. So to say that a, a 6 million barrel brewery is small relative to the other players in the industry, I think is very valid. Uh, you know, a tenth the size of, of uh, the smaller of the two giants. Uh, so it's all relative. And these are, the, these are the companies we compete with. We meet 
on the, on the street and, uh, you know, on the competitive landscape every day. Uh, so we, uh, as Charlie said, have to differentiate ourselves and, and show that we're creating value for the consumer uh, that the, something different than what the big guys are doing. Did you want to add anything to what craft beer is? Um, I agree with Charlie that craft beer is in the mind of the drinker. You can't really say that. And this is where in our industry people have, have gotten hung up. I would also add that really craft brewer for us has largely been a tool to use for a data set. Who, you know, how much beer did we make? Um, sort of a designation of who fits, who are our members. And so for me, it's kind of a, a behind the scenes, you know, I want to I talk with beer drinkers about how wonderful beer is. And that other piece is, and, and how wonderful brewers are. That other piece, though, is kind of, it's, it's something we use almost administratively. Yeah, it defines who, who we represent, who the Brewers Association. Yeah. Uh, you know, our goal is to promote and protect craft brewers, so we have to dis define what a craft brewer who is. Those and are. so that change from 2 million to 6 million, which yes. seems like such a leap, mm -hmm. even if it's a, a, a small uh, amount compared to the huge brewers, yeah. it seems like a huge leap within an organization. I'm, I'm trying to understand what that leap means. And I imagine that in, in part it means a lot of money. I mean, it probably has something to do with, you know, who now is accepted in, who now is producing too much to, if, the, if two million was what it was kept to, to remaining a craft brewer. I'm just trying to understand. What, what, what do you, what, I want to understand what you're inferring by it, it means a lot of money. Well, I imagine that some people want to continue to stay within a craft brewing denomination, mm -hmm. but if you didn't expand the definition, they, they would no longer be part of that organization. Yeah. So I'm, I just I was stunned. Yeah. That. Yeah. 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 We don't want to throw people out just because they're successful. Right. They're, you know, they're, they're still... Uh, operating in the spirit of other craft brewers, so, uh, you know. And when we came up with the definition, we said, you know, let's be, when Charlie first made the definition for microbrewers, it was 15,000 barrels, and that seemed like it would be forever yeah. before anyone be, you know, hit the ceiling of a microbrewer. And so I think we were trying to say, let's not go part of the way there and then yes. later wish that we had gone far enough of the way that, you know, because now we're going to change our definition again. We didn't want to do that. We wanted to try to be prescient about the future. And you and may need to change characterize 6 that million accurately. to 10 million. Well, we're still at the largest of the, small, of the craft brewers is about 2.3 million thereabouts. Some? So there's, there's a long ways to go. And I think the board and our hours and days of discussion on this I'm matter sure. was was kind of taking the long view and what resources would all of us benefit by, you know, uh, the inclusive, by capturing the inclusivity of, of, of these brewers that were the pioneers and have resources to help 
the smallest of brewers improve their quality and champion uh, their representation with legislation or regula regulatory decisions. I mean, there seems a lot to, to be a, a debate going on between craft versus crafty, mm -hmm. and um, <laughs> I. I love to ask you, why shouldn't we call Blue Moon a craft beer? Well, you can if you want. <laughs> um, I think we've already said in terms of craft beer, you, exactly what Steve said, you can if you want. When it comes to craft brewer, and um, you say, well, that beer is made by Miller Coors, then we say, well, then... They don't fit in the category of craft brewer. We can't name what each one of you calls, what seat categorizes mm -hmm. the beer. And honestly, I hope you're spending time thinking about the lovely color or the aroma or, um, you know, the work that New Belgium Brewing Company has done to be socially responsible or something other than is this a craft beer or not. Mm -hmm. No, I was, I was stunned, as I imagine many people were, if they, if they didn't know about that, when I found out who made Blue Moon. I didn't know at first, and that, that seems to me so interesting. The, and it's the, not good or bad. We just well, think they ought to it, say it, it, this it is may, made it by may be, It may be good or bad. <laughs> no, but you know, it, we, it, but it, the, could, the, it could be. I mean, you know, the, the fact that something is hidden or very difficult to find out. You know, in a, in a couple of days from now, I'll, I'll be speaking with Laurie David ab about her movie called Fed Up. And it's just so interesting to know. I don't know if you knew this, but when you look at a package um, of food, every, everything is put in terms of percentage, how much protein, except for sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. The amount of sugar in products isn't put. Well, probably and because the daily allowance for sugar ought to be zero <laughs> would be my well, guess. Well, it should be, it should be <laughs> very small. Mm -hmm. And um, the, her film sort of highlights that and, and makes one think about, yeah. you know, just... I mean, she goes as far as to say that in some sense we should demonize the food industry the same way de we demonized the tobacco industry. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that we should demonize Blue Moon. That's not what I'm saying. But I am going in the direction of saying it isn't perhaps great that one can't really find this out unless one is really paying a certain form of attention. So what do you say to that? You know, we, we the Brewers Association, wrote that op-ed piece in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch titled Craft versus Crafty. Yeah. And basically we were just saying we, we think that, uh, you know, the Miller Coors name should be on the Blue Moon package because, like you, I, I've talked to a lot of people who are surprised to hear that Blue Moon is made by Miller Coors or Shock Top is made by Anheuser-Busch. Um, I didn't know either. Yeah, uh, well... And it sort of changes my... my uh, it's a very strange thing, I mean, because, you know, what, what is in a label? Well, you know, we're defending the, the, the term craft brewer, and, and I think that's a legitimate uh, activity for the Brewers Association and the industry. Look at how uh, the term organic 
has been devalued. Uh, you know, you can't believe... I, well, I see organic on so many products now, mm -hmm. and I, I know they're probably not strictly organic the way I think of it. Uh, and the whole... The term has been devalued tremendously, and we don't want to see that happen to, to craft brewers. So you know, we're, we're defending that. I mean, personally, my, my, some of my thinking along these lines is that, you know, craft brewers take a lot of pride. The small and independent brewers take a lot of pride in the beer that they make, and they put their name of the company on it. And I, for, me, for, for the life of me, I, I don't understand why the larger brewers wouldn't take pride in their products and put their company uh, name are you, are you serious, though, um, when you say for the life of me? No, not I, for the life no. of me. No, no, wait, <laughs> no, no. They can't but, any but, contracts no, no, but, on but, me. But, but, but <laughs> Charlie, I actually <laughs> mean... No, 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 serious. I understand, and I'm, I'm not used to really thinking that literally. What I, what I, what I would like to say is that I think you, you actually do probably know why um, the... The name isn't on the label. I <laughs> well, mean, I, well, in other words, say, I think that it doesn't take too... They often hear that they, that they say that for the consumer it doesn't matter. But if it didn't matter, then why would they do it in the first place? Why would they... Why would they not do it? Yeah, yeah. why would they not do it? So, so I, it, any, any ideas? It's, it's marketing. Um, it's marketing and trying to imitate what I also, do. I also think... Um, I, I had a bit of this conversation today, too. I also think that there are often times that large corporate bodies get a little bit tone deaf to the um, emerging zeitgeist. And so what seemed like a good idea eight years ago or whatever, now may be back, you know, where people now say, oh, now I'm suspicious of you because you don't have your corporate, you don't have the provenance of the beer on the label. And I, you know, I will not be surprised to see them decide that they're going to make that change. Hmm. I mean, there's so many products out there that it's a way of doing business, obviously, like Burt's Bees, all the products, are owned by Clorox. Um, and again, a, again, I didn't yeah, know. There's a lot of companies um, out but there. But I didn't know. No, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I, I live, I live, thank you, I, that felt very nice. But I, I, it, you know, it, it, um, it's amazing how much we are yeah. fooled. And then when you say it, it's neither good nor bad, I'm not sure. Yeah, I... I you're yeah. beginning to agree with me. Um, but, twice. But, this uh, has twice, twice. Twice. No, no, no. One night. I, I mean, I, I feel like I know your reaction already, Steve, but I'll try it out on you. Um, you use the word authenticity is, is, a lot. Is, so. is Goose Island still a craft beer? Uh, do they make <laughs> craft beer? Um, I drink Goose Island when, when I see it occasionally. Uh, uh, but uh, doesn't quite answer my they're question. They're not a craft brewer. <laughs> but but, but, uh, but <laughs> I would not say they're a craft brewer. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, actually, I'll be appearing with uh, John Hall, the founder of Goose Island, who no longer is the owner. But I'll be appearing with him next week in uh, Chicago at an event, and that's going to be very interesting. Um, with I mean, they're a hundred percent owned by Anheuser Busch now, and. Uh, uh, we'll see how that works out in the, in the long term. You know, the big guys uh, have been play, playing around with our segment for really 30 years. Uh, there's an uh, appendix in my book 
that, that a chronology of all their efforts to play in our category. And I don't think they took it seriously really until like the last seven or eight years because craft beer is growing at double digits and they are losing an astounding volume of, of their big light beers and light lager beers. They've lost about 18 million barrels in the last five years. And, and craft beer is exploding with growth. So now they're playing hardball in, in our segment. And that's a complement to what we've done, uh, but it's also a challenge to us. I think for the big brewers, I think it's a very tricky equation. It's a real dilemma for them because the more they promote flavor in beer, uh, the more they undercut their big brands, which are not really about flavor. They're about image advertising and media-driven products. So does that mean that uh, they are underplaying it because in some way the consumer, the American consumer in the middle of this country, let's say, will discover in their beer something new and their taste buds will be yeah, awakened? Yeah. I, I think um, if, so they're, you, if you, they're drinking a Blue Moon or a, or a Shock Top or a Goose Island and, and they're turned on by that, they'll eventually try a Brooklyn Lager. You know, people... Craft so it's, beer it's drinkers kind of a, a gateway uh, experiment. To, yeah. they're, not, they're not really, yeah, it's a gateway beer. To you. Yeah. And I also think, <laughs> I mean, in, in, um, I think what you were saying earlier, Steve, was if they say, hey, try our really flavorful, you know, Goose Island beer, they're sort of by um, implication saying that, Don't their, drink our crappy. their Bud Light is not... And, and by the way, their beers are not crappy. They make some of the most technically excellent beers in the world. They're just not very distinctive. And so how Technic do you say, yeah. like, this is really flavorful. What does that, by comparison, yeah. say about the, the vast majority of the beer that they make? It's a real dilemma for them, and I think I, they're very much aware of it. So interesting, the, the word technically excellent. There is, uh, there is no craft brewer who could make a beer as consistently um, as they can. In 12 breweries all around the country. It's a feat. It, it is a marvel. Do I want to drink it? Not very often. Every once in a while. You know, hot day... Um, You know. <laughs> Come on, when was the last time? You... I actually, the last time I had one, I think, was... Um, I had one. It sounds all so... At a, I had, I had at one. A, <coughs> uh, I was dancing in a, you know, at a concert. And a it was day. really, it was the thing that they had for sale. And, you know, we were dancing hard and it was late. And it was like, well, this will be refreshing and not too heavy. And I think the last time I had a, a Budweiser, I was at a Mets game. And it, it was a long, quite a while ago. And I, 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 when I bought it, my daughter Lily was <laughs> sitting next to me and she said, Dad. You're drinking a Budweiser? <laughs> and I took a sip of it, and I got the hiccups. I couldn't, I couldn't finish the thing. That's funny. Um, I'd like us to talk a little bit about your garage years, as you call them, or the early years, or how you, how you started out. Um, 
Kim, perhaps we'll start with you. Okay. Um, how, um, as we spoke a little bit before we got on stage, my, I, I grew up in so far that that happened in part in Belgium and uh, bicycled a lot around Belgium and lived in Bruges. And I'd like you to tell us uh, the ways in which you started your dream, as it were. Okay. Um, I'll try to keep it fairly short. In, in 1991, my then husband, Jeff Liebisch, and I started New Belgium in the basement of our house. And that space was maybe two of, the, um, of this deck that we're sitting on. So it really is kind of one of those crazy American success stories. Um, we took a, out a second mortgage on our house. Uh, Jeff was an electrical engineer, and so in those days, I was a social worker. In those days, they sent those, you have been pre-approved for a line of credit from, you know, Visa or from whomever. They didn't send those to social workers, but they did send them to electrical engineers. And so we funded our, um, our, the starting of our brewery through a second mortgage and lines of credits on credit cards. So we were in our house, um, but the, the genesis of that was that um, Jeff had been a home brewer, started winning awards with his beer, and I honestly think, I always think people think I'm weird when I say this. He's a classical, shy, introverted, very bright engineer. I remember and, him taking my beer-making class yeah, in Denver. Yeah, and when we when started I, <laughs> dating, I think he said, there's someone who can run the front of the house. So, um, so we... He had been on a mountain bike trip in Europe, and in those days, a mountain bike was called a fat tire bike. And he came home, and he made a homebrew to emulate that style, some styles of beers he'd had there, and he called it fat tire in memory of the trip. And so when we decided to become a craft brewery, um, a microbrewery at that time, um, we one of our beers that we were going to make was Fat Tire, and we were really going to specialize in Belgian styles because there was no one in the United States making those styles. The first mm -hmm. three years that we entered our beer in the Great American Beer Festival, they weren't judged because they didn't have Belgian categories in those days. So, And yeah. what was it about the Belgian beers? There, Belgians, um, b beer is to Belgium what wine is to France. It's very regionalized and specialized, and they have a great deal of pride in their brewing heritage. And, it, and they're very willing to um, experiment with fruit and with different yeast strains. And, um, you know, so they make, they really, the Reinheitsgebot, which is the German purity law, they really just took that and sort of went, whatever, and... <laughs> And, you know, put in cherries or raspberries or some really um, very um, flavor-inducing yeast strains. And so it's just a, it's a place to really explore with beer. They've also made, they've aged beer on wood for a very long time. And we just really felt like this was, a, this was something that we loved. We loved, you go to Belgium and they give you... You know, if it's a bottled beer, they give you the bottle and they lay down the crown and they give it to you in a glass for that particular brand, not the brewery, but the brand. And they turn, you know, the letters of the beer brand toward you. This sounds um, like a, a, 
seduction. It, yes, it's lovely. <laughs> it's a lovely ritual. Yeah. To right. me, to me, Belgian beers are the hunka hunka burning love of beer, the beer the world. <laughs> the hunka hunka burning love of the beer world. I had no idea, Charlie. <laughs> I'm a poet, you know? Okay. <laughs> you know, when that you... That was a stopper. Yeah, you it did. Talking. Because I, I, yeah, it, it did. It, just for a minute, it made me think about what you might be saying. But, um, but I'm, I'm curious no. by... Um, you mentioned very quickly that you were a social worker. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering whether that in any form or fashion helped you, do you think... Uh, later in your life when you were one of the, I imagine, one of the only women to, to run such a large organization. And I imagine some of those board meetings were not easy. I've, I've been on a board with all men for 15 years. <coughs> we got our first woman this year, and she's a lovely human being. I'm really excited to have her. I, I think for me, I have 550 coworkers now, and they own 100% of New Belgium. Um, my boys and I sold the balance of what they hadn't already owned to them um, in, in the beginning of 2013. And so um, for us, this is a lot about loving beer, but it's also a lot about how you... Um, take look at the business as usual model and turn it on its head a bit we've been practicing open book management high involvement culture widely dispersed employee ownership since 1996 and um i find that every bit as um alluring as compelling the beer that but we make compelling but in in some way the the question i asked you do you do you think that some of the skills you, you learned early on helped you? Sure. They're, social work is a generalist degree. And, you know, being, you know, running a brewery is really a generalist experience. It's, it's, it's helpful to be able to think about a lot of different things rather than just one very specific thing. But does yeah. it feel lonely at the top as a only woman or just about the only woman? It doesn't feel lonely by my gender. It, you know, anyone out there who is a boss understands that sometimes being the boss is lonely because you have to, you know, suspend how much you like someone or care about something to do the thing that must be done. And sometimes that's a lonely position. You know, uh, Kim is being modest here. When we merged uh, the association that Charlie started in Boulder with the old uh, regional uh, brewing trade association called the Brewers Association of America, uh, we merged those two organizations into the Brewers Association, which Charlie now runs, uh, in, in 2004. And that was a process that took about two years. Yep. And Kim really was the quarterback of that, uh, of that team. Two years of facilitation with all yeah. men and me. So, so your, your degree helped time. you. Her experience yeah. with, uh, uh, you know, dealing with dysfunctional families was very useful. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I thought so. I mean, it, it, it's lonely at the top for many reasons, and I think probably you're underplaying the gender because I imagine it, you know, considering that 
you're the only one except for one who's a nice person who just joined, it, it, must, it must be a struggle. It must be a struggle in those rooms. I, you know... Or maybe I th- you don't think of it that way. I think of um, masculine and feminine traits, and I know a lot of men who have a good toolbox of both of those. And I know men who, and I know women who don't have it. You know, so I'm 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 hesitant. I'm a feminist. I believe um, in um, the power of women in business. But I'm hesitant to say that it is, I mean, I've had more sort of traveling with Steve, drinking beer and eating in restaurants, and it, we're friends. It's not real. I don't feel lonely because I'm sitting with the same 15 guys for 15 years. No, no we're, we're very close. Yeah, we're, we're no, very no, good no, friends. I, I, and I hope my wife, Ellen, just heard, you know, that toolbox that... I have one of those, right? Do, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. No, of course. Ellen knows that you have both masculine and feminine traits. Um, let's talk about your, your, your earlier years, Steve. You, you began as a journalist, and they're, you know, they're incredible stories. I mean, the story of of Sadat, the story of the mob. Yeah. Um, how, if you could tell a little bit how you began and what, what the impulse or the trigger was for you to go into brewing. Well, uh, yeah, I covered, a, I, I was a Middle East correspondent for Associated Press in the late 70s, early 80s. I covered a lot of big stories, uh, in wars in Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, and you know, uh, the Sadat assassination in, in Cairo. But when I was there, I met American diplomats who had worked in Saudi Arabia, where they have Islamic law. You can't drink uh, alcohol. And all, all the foreigners there, literally all of them, make their own beer at home. And, and they drink the beer at home. And the Saudis kind of turn a blind eye to that. Uh, so I got interested in home brewing. And then uh, uh, Ellen uh, got fed up with being the wife of a war correspondent. So, uh, you know, we came back to New York, settled uh, in Brooklyn. I went to work for Newsday and making beer at home and reading about these small breweries out on the West Coast. And, you know, I was 39 years old and I thought, damn, I always wanted to start my own company. And if I'm not going to do it now, when am I going to do it? Uh, And it was kind of boring being an editor compared to what I had done before. So, uh, you know, with my downstairs neighbor, Tom Potter, uh, who was a young guy with an MBA, always wanted to start his own business, we quit our jobs and uh, started Brooklyn Brewery. And uh, I have no regrets. I mean, it's been a great adventure. It, it was, you know, we sweated bullets, I really, for like 15 years. It was, it was could have gone either way. But uh, uh, it's ver- on a very sound footing now. And, uh, you know, it, it's great. We have a lot of cool things going on. And, 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 and the, the industry is growing, and you think not that- only in the U.S., but around the world. Absolutely. This whole... Uh, you know, way of, of brewing and, and marketing beer is happening all around the world now. It's really am I, am remarkable. I, am, and, and to some extent, I'm, am I right to believe that you are, you're teaching some of the Europeans how to brew? Yeah. It's which a, is an interesting... It's a great irony. I mean, it's a real circle because we were, you know, I was inspired by the brewers 
in, in Northern Europe. And, and now we, we just opened a brewery in, in Stockholm, uh, a partnership with Carlsberg, one of the great brewers of, of the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're learning from American craft brewers. Uh, the, the innovation that's happened in, in, in America is astounding. I, I mean, starting with Kim and, and the Belgian-style uh, brewers like Allagash and Russian River and, uh, uh, you know, Dogfish down in Delaware. In the 90s, there was just an explosion of innovation, and that has continued. The, the third generation uh, of brewers that Michael was talking about earlier I mean, it's just the, the different business models they're exploring and, and the different uh, styles and, and approaches to brewing. I mean, it's really unbelievable. So, and the whole world is watching now and so learning. So would, would you say that you, in some way, by going to Sweden in the way that you have, that you're exporting the revolution? I think we're exporting the revelation. But I mean, <coughs> yes, we are. We yeah. are indeed. Yeah. I, I mean, and, it's and, happening in in uh, Brazil and Australia. And by, by working with Carlsberg, do you think you are um, in some, some way sleeping with the enemy because it's so? You know, loud. Carlsberg is a very strange company. Uh, most people don't realize that the founder of, of Carlsberg, uh, Carl Jakobsen, uh, decreed when he in his will that the brewery would forever be owned by a not-for-profit foundation dedicated to science and art. So the Carlsberg Brewery funds art galleries uh, in, in Scandinavia. It funds it's, it's funding an archaeological dig now uh, at the ancient port of Piraeus out, outside of Athens. Uh, and it... 70% of the voting stock of Carlsberg is controlled by this foundation. The, the chairman of the board of Carlsberg is a nanotechnologist. He, does, he knows nothing about brewing. And the most members of the board are artists and scientists. Uh, it's a very strange company. And that means it can never be taken over by Anheuser-Busch, Imbev, or S.A.B. Miller, the, the giants of the... So that's the way you answer my question in yeah, some way. I, yeah, I, because, I feel a kinship yeah. with, uh, with Carlsberg. And, you know, their mission is similar to a lot of craft brewers, us included, uh, that, you know, we don't spend money on, on mass advertising. We, we donate beer to not-for-profit organizations, arts organizations, and that's the way we market ourselves and... And, and build goodwill in the communities where we sell beer. No, it's, it's so interesting. When I said exporting the, the revolution, I was interested in, in 961 beer in Lebanon I mean, yeah, and how right. inspired they, they have been by you. Um, there's an editorial that you wrote, Steve, that seems to have inspired people to get angry at you. <laughs> um, now, and, and I think you, am I right to say that in some way you enjoy it? <laughs> well, you know, I've never quite been able to give up being a journalist. Right. Uh, and, uh, yes, I, I like saying things that have an impact. Uh, well, it had an impact. It did have an impact. But, you know, that uh, editorial was written on behalf of the Brewers and with the full support of the Brewers Association. And yeah. it was, uh, this is an op-ed in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago 
criticizing uh, the system of distribution uh, in America that protects distributors from big brewers but tends to uh, uh, really put uh, small brewers at a disadvantage when dealing with distributors. Um, you weren't criticizing the system as a whole, just certain aspects of it. Yeah. 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 Did, do you, did you understand the, how do you say it, hooplala, the hulala, the, the reaction to, to, to the... Because I read the piece... It was, meant, it was meant to shock. It was, it was meant... We, you know, so you we, knew we, you, knew you were... Been, yeah, we've been talking to distributors about this problem for about 15 years. And, and that op-ed was meant to say, look, if you want to have a fight about this publicly, we're going to win. And, and hopefully it's going to lead to some good things. Uh, but it, it was... The Brewers Association was totally... Uh, you know, if you read my book, I, I, that's by Steve Hendy only. And... Uh, It's very, there are many, in many ways we owe the distributors for a lot of the success that we've had, particularly in the last decade. And I talk about that in the book. And you, and you talk about the way in which you um, worked with various um, independent brewers in Europe and distributed and worked together with them to create also what I take to be great goodwill. And I'm wondering, you know, now has... A, the competitive spirit with other craft... I mean, I know you're all friends here, so it's a bit hard. But, I mean, is there... I see your eyes going in that direction, but is there an, an edge? Is there... You know, I, I think we seem to be remarkably good at leaving the marketplace dynamic at the door or... Somewhat, I don't know if the door is the right place, but when we get together, when we talk about one another, when we, you know, collaborate on a beer, we're really good at putting aside the fact that it's competitive out there and just um, really reveling in being together, enjoying the ancient art of brewing whatever it is that we're doing. And sure, there are times when someone will do something that another brewer finds annoying, but we tend to keep that kind of a squabble between two people privately and not so much publicly. I think it's remarkable how well uh, craft brewers in this country openly compete with each other, but yet they are convivial and collaborative and yeah. just what Kim described. And it's the envy of the beer world outside of the United States. The Europeans often comment, you would never see this yeah. in Europe. Asians, everywhere. I mean, it's just, they can't get past the secretiveness of what they think is the secretiveness, secretiveness I, I, of what they do in their brewery. And there's no, there and are no I, I guess there are a few lightning rods in, in that beautiful <laughs> harmony you describe. Um, it happens. And, it and, happens. And with 2,800 breweries, it's no, going to happen I, more I and more. No, and I imagine that one of them, I mean, one name that seems to pop up all the time is Jim Koch. Or Koch. I don't know how Cook. you Cook. 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 
And um, he's the founder and chairman of Boston Beer Company. And he gives you a blurb. I must say, I've always wanted to do an event about book tours and blurbs. Perhaps the last event I'll do. And I, this, 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 this blurb is extraordinary. It says, while Steve Hindi and I still disagree about many things, including some of his stories in this book, no one has done a better job to, of bringing to life the cast of characters who created the craft beer revolution. He does a great job of telling the story of how American beer went from an also from an also ran to the envy. Excuse me, of telling a great story of how American beer went from an also ran to the envy of the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, the, the f disagree on many things, and um, I, I, I tend to read in that some real, real, I mean, real subject of contention. Well, um, Jim, real disagreement. Jim is really the <coughs> boldest of all the craft brewers. You know, when when his company started in the mid '80s, he uh, immediately did attack ads on radio, attacking Heineken and Beck's uh, on the grounds that they used corn in their beer and that their, those beers could not be sold in Germany because they violated the German purity law. And he went after them, uh, you know, amazingly. I mean, it was very courageous, these big companies. And, uh, you know, they uh, hemmed and hawed, and, and they pulled their advertising from some uh, magazines that wrote about it. But in the end, he was right. And, and they couldn't do anything. They couldn't lay a glove on him. Uh, so that, that was how Jim entered the industry. And, and it was kind of, I think that, that spirit of, uh, you know, going against the giants is definitely a big part of, of what craft beer's all about. Do, um, do, you and, feel and, do you feel you're still going against the giants? Oh, yeah. As yeah. much as, be, I mean, I guess in the question here it's, becomes one... It's in one, the DNA of all craft the DNA. I, I'm I just wondering again what it means to be a, an aging revolutionary. You know, <laughs> easy um, there. Well, that's easy. No, 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 I'll be easy. But, you know, there is, there is this... I, I, I'm just... You know, uh, yeah, tell I'm, me. On, I'm on the board. The big brewers have one small brewer on their board, and, and it's been me for most of the last uh, six, seven years. And it, it's a very uncomfortable job. I'm trying to, to get Kim to replace me, uh, hopefully this year. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of tension uh, between the big brewers and, and craft brewers. And that's, that's kind of a big problem because there, there are so many big issues that we need to work together on. Uh, like, for instance, this latest thing with the FDA uh, you know, talking about regulating the way what we do with our used grain, which typically we give to farmers and it's used as feed. But uh, uh, that's a sort of a case in point where we're totally on the same page uh, with the big brewers. And there are many issues like that where we have to work together. But there's, there's a, a lot of tension now between them and us, I think largely because of their loss of volume and our, our growth. Uh, I guess another way for me to have phrased the same question, which, which is maybe, maybe I'm, I'm wrong in assuming this, but do, do, you, do you miss in some way being the underdogs? Because you're becoming so big. I am often you know. surprised when smaller brewers will describe us as like 
you know, now we're the people that they fear because I'm, you know, I don't have that sense of us. You still I believe think in of competition. I believe in, you know, trying to do your very best job. I don't believe in being dirty about it or um, underhanded. Um, but I, it does take me aback when I hear that they see us as... Because you don't see yourself that way. No, yeah. but, you know, I'm inside well, of my... And actually, our association, uh, the board, uh, has spots for, uh, you know, brew pubs, and, and we, we try uh, small brewers and larger brewers. It, it's not just totally dominated by the large brewers. And you're, impl- you're implying that there's a feeling out there amongst some, some people that the small brewer isn't an underdog anymore because they've been so, so successful. But yet well, also because you, you... I don't know where I, I read that, but you're, you're claiming that you might have 20% of the market. Well, we're, we're, p- we have a vision for that. For that. We are... We're not... When, 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 you, when you do have 20%... <laughs> we're aspiring. Yes, but yeah. then you're not small anymore if, if you arrive at those But what percentage of, of the entire beer market is New Belgium? Um, why can't well, I we're find not in every state. We're in 37 states, and we're like 0.3% yeah. of the yeah. entire market. So how can market. you call that big? And that 20% is all of us, all 2,700 of us. So you're going to have people bigger than me. And I'm, and I'm so upset because every time I come back from Idaho, I can't find a fat yeah, tire here. But that's yeah. going to change. Um, we are we are having our groundbreaking at the end of this week for our Asheville brewery. I'm very, I'm with your very, help. I'm, It'll I change am, with your I help. I am very <laughs> happy. Um, now, we're going to end this evening with a, a quick and, and dirty survey of uh, a few beers we're going to bring here oh, fun. Uh, for, for us to taste. Um, so here they come. We're going to have you taste them and have you describe them in no particular order um, will there be labels in, on it maybe? that I will see there will be red ah. blue, silver and gold um, <coughs> Aisha can you help me with what is ah, red, blue, silver and gold Actually, and so, obviously you don't know what red, blue, silver and gold mean to us obviously I don't so tell me. Yeah. That's the large These brewers. guys are laughing. Oh, there, well, there you, this I d- would be Budweiser, the silver. Yeah. I, well, I don't know. And this just proves my, my uh, deep-rooted ignorance. But let's have some of this. Here you. Okay, the red. Okay, we're, we're Everything's going to taste like a cough drop to me. Yeah, Charlie's <laughs> got a cough, so. These very interesting glasses, Paul. Well, I'm it's not worthy of your Belgian heritage. No, 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 no. This was um, very kindly brought bought it today. Brings me back to the old homebrew class days, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. So, Charlie. Charlie. It tastes like cough drops. <laughs> <laughs> and besides that... Charlie has a cold. Um... It has a elevated hop, char- hop bitterness character. Um, I smell a little bit of hop aroma in there. It's not over the top. Tiny bit of phenols in there as well. Sort of a sweet, um, 
a little bit of yeah. I think it stylistically it could be a, a estuary banana. An IPA. I, I just I think it's a, an IPA. Might be a well balanced IPA. Yeah. I think it's not happy enough for that in my mind. Because you're from the West. That's right, where we drink. We like our the hops. West, uh, is all about hops. The yeah. East is more about balance. I think you're... you're... <laughs> Do you like it? Yeah. 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 You know, you could drink more of that. Could be a beer made by a large brewer or a small brewer. Who knows what? Which Doesn't is matter. kind of back to that craft beer versus... Well, this is a Goose Island uh, Brewery IPA, you're right, craft beer that was purchased, as you know, by mm -hmm. a fairly yeah, large very company. Good. Um, now, let's try the blue. I'd love you to describe this a little bit, Steve. Hmm. I'm not doing the right thing. You're all smelling before. <laughs> well, 80% of what you taste is actually smell. That's how your brain, brain works. Oh, some spice and phenolics in there. Um, Britannomyces, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just think it's What sour? did you say? Britannomyces, it's a um, yeast strain that is, um, has, do you taste something in there? I, some of these descriptors. No, I, I want them. Uh, yeah, and they're, <laughs> they're, they're accurate, but... It, by themselves, they're that? a little yeah. bit frightening, like um, Band-Aids. Try Band-Aids. A certain type of fruity. I don't know. Okay. Um, Perhaps a little bit of horse blanket. <laughs> wet, a wet horse wet blanket. Wet horse blanket, yeah. All right, wet a little bit of apple-y fruitiness uh -huh. that's in the top. Because if you ever had some kinds of Chianti, they will have a Britannomyces character to yeah, it. Yeah, this is a, a specialty beer, very much. Mm. Mm. Okay, Paul, what is it? Okay, this is a homebrew made by Dick Cantwell. <laughs> <laughs> that's my boyfriend. Of Elie... <laughs> Where, did you like it? You say a homebrew? <laughs> yeah. Homebrew made by Dick Cantwell of Elysian Brewing Company, Seattle, brewed in Brooklyn at Bitter, I'm reading now because I really don't know what I'm saying, Bitter and Esther's Homebrew Store, hmm. only 15 gallons made, huh. experimental hop used, which gives it a different flavor, and I have here hop number 366. 366 oh, is yeah. a very popular new hop. It ha yeah. It's just being named right now. It's going from numbers to names. Um, do they say anything about Britannomyces in there? They don't. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they, they might. Should but we they... call him on the phone <coughs> and see? Uh, maybe, maybe. Um... It's great, right, Kim? Um, this one is, um, I would like to see a little more balance in Well, in well you, can, you, you probably can have an influence I mean, if on it. The intention it. of this was to stylistically be a pale ale or a pilsner or something, yeah. they, someone blew it. 
because yeah. it has yeah, it's such a, the wild what... characters of some of these strains of I mean, It's fabulously yeah. interesting it, to me to hear all this because, it, I mean, I grew up in part with people who described wine, and it's so interesting, the words. Uh-huh. I mean, what does Band-Aid mean, for instance? I mean, you know, it's... it's Phenolic is the technical term. Yeah. But, but that doesn't mean really anything for someone who's not in a sensory program. Um, I, it, well, I, I am think in a sensory you, program, but not in that one. When, yeah. you, when you hear a descriptor and you taste something, or maybe you smell it, and, so, it, and it resonates for you, you say, that's absolutely what that is. Right, we're going to go to the, to, the, to, the, to the silver, and here we're getting something just to clean our palate before we go to a, the pièce de résistance. There's nothing there in the aroma. Maybe a little apple ester. Hmm, this is... <laughs> I'm, I think I might be getting the hiccups. <laughs> you, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, so this is a Budweiser um, adjunct lager made with rice. Um, it's very clean. Yeah, very clean. Now, um, in, in closing, before we take a, a few questions, if you still can after all of this. Um, We're professionals. I'm sh- I, uh, uh, let's, let's smell this one. Um, and then this has... Sorry, the audience this doesn't is a get it. I, I know, yeah. but you know, um, you I, I, I know, but, but they're, they're coming to the, the party <laughs> afterwards, so I, I don't feel terrible for them. But um, yeah. it's just, the, we have a prohibition law here at the library, really, and can't, unfortunately, serve beer to you, which I'd love to do. Um, so if you would like to see that happen. Oh, this, the is, long room. this is definitely right? from Isn't the West. Where we're going? Yeah. Although... Pardon? There may be some the, brewers. In the, they, everybody's yeah. capable yeah. of making this kind of beer, for sure. Actually, there's a uh, little brewery in Carroll Gardens in, in Brooklyn. I think it's called The Better Half. And their mission is to make West Coast-style IPAs. IPAs. This is a West Coast-style IPA, and Charlie and I think it's Simcoe Hops. Simcoe or Amarillo or Columbus. And it's, it could be a double IPA. It could be the, yeah. There's enough alcohol in here that yeah. is warming my throat, which feels pretty good at this point. Uh, <laughs> I think it is a double IPA, but I don't know. I'll read to you what, what uh, has been prepared for me, and it seems double to me. I mean, I feel it at, at least that, <laughs> that way, and I, I, I feel like I feel it. Doubly, it's um, an other hand brewing company's all green everything, a triple IPA. Okay. Ten and a half percent. Okay, that's other hand. Other hand brewing company's all green everything. Huh. You know that brewery? No, where I'm are they not from? Not aware of them. I don't where? know. Somebody knows where. <laughs> oh, there have. It's from Brooklyn. Oh, yes. okay. It's a West Coast IPA from Brooklyn. <laughs> West Coast of Brooklyn. Yeah, because West Coast yeah. is just a style. But it's not a... It's, yeah. No. It's a kind of a sub-style, really. Right. Very not, good. Not a it's, terrible You know, it's... Uh, not something you're going to wait, drink at a baseball game if you want to get to the seventh oh, inning. Yeah, right. <laughs> no. 
There'll be no stretching. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. So we have a mic there, and if you could come up and ask your question, and, and yeah, so anyone Michael, who has any questions, please, please come uh, up, come come up to the mic. Line up here in could. the middle, oh, leave a little bit of room, you. and then we'll go through as many as we can. With Thanks the and we can put put up the lights a little bit. Hi there. Hi. Uh, really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. My name is John, and I am the co-owner of Bitter and Esther's Homebrew Shop where Dick came and made oh, that beer. Nice. Oh, nice. So I, uh, it was not made he's with adorable, Breton Meissens. He's adorable, isn't he? Oh, he's wonderful. <laughs> it was a pale ale made with that, um, that experimental hop, and the hop itself was a little, right away, a little chalky, a little strange. Uh, the beer's been sitting for about five months, so it might be a little bready. It's, hence the Breton Meissens. Yeah, I just perhaps. wanted to explain that. But I know you wanted smart questions, but I have a stupid question, if that's okay. <laughs> Do any of you still homebrew? You do. I knew you did. Right. You guys. I, I have a question for the audience. Just uh, raise your hand. How many people in this room are homebrewers or have homebrewed? Wow. Wow. Nice. You know, the average, so, statistically in the U.S., one of every 200 adults is a homebrewer. So but. my answer to that would just be that Dick and I have a house in San Francisco, and we have a big storage room, and we talked about putting a homebrew set up in there, and then we went, nah. <laughs> so. You came into New York. Steve, you don't homebrew anymore? No, I think the last time I homebrewed was uh, for a television uh, crew, you know. So I boiled something up in the kitchen. Uh, no, uh, we make beer every day at the brewery, and I'm very happy about that. Right. <laughs> well, that's kind of that's your home, and that's yeah. home brewery, right? yeah. It's my second home. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Just to build on that for a moment, many people don't realize, I think, as craft breweries grow and they hire brewers in, that they don't necessarily continue brewing at all, the original founders. So in your day-to-day -day lives, how often are you on the floor or involved with the brewing staff or... Uh, the process. When I come in in the morning, I always walk through the packaging room and the fermentation room and, and the brewery and uh, say hello to everyone. And uh, uh, I love that. Uh, you know, the smell and the guys working in the morning, it's, it's a great way to start the day. So, chief tester. That sounds right. Like. <laughs> I have never been a brewer, um, although I have home brewed. And, um, but I am involved, I'm, I lead our portfolio council, I'm involved in, I see our brewers every day and our seller people and people in packaging and so I'm involved in the process and I'm conversant in brewing, but I'm not a brewer. Um, you talked about distribution, was part of the sort of going back to the 80s and 90s, just getting the product out because your product is so much better that the shelf life is shorter, that it just went bad before it could get sold? Because um, I remember you could get in two places in Manhattan. That was it. You know, and it, it, you could mix Orleans and yours, and that was kind of the great beers in the mid-80s. And, yeah. you know, occasionally on Long Island you could get them, but you couldn't find them for very long because they went bad. When, when we started in New York, none of the big distributors was interested in uh, handling our beer. They thought, I mean, they thought we were crazy. We, you know, we had Brooklyn Lager. We didn't have any money for marketing. 
and we said, we'll go out and sell it. And uh, in New York, un- unlike some other states, you can distribute your own beer. So we uh, distributed our own beer, and eventually we took on a lot of other uh, beers from, from Europe and other craft beers. And uh, during the first 15 years of our business, um, there were probably about 25 other startups, 25 or 30 startups in Metro New York that failed. And all of them failed because of distribution, because of inability to get their product to the customer. And we struggled with distribution. Believe me, it was not an easy uh, thing. But had we not done that, I don't think I'd be sitting here talking about uh, the Brooklyn Brewery today. Uh, that, that was really a key to our success. And we learned so much from uh, distributing the beer too, you know, being directly in touch with the customer every day and hearing about the problems and, and uh, the good things. And uh, uh, distribution is the key to the, the beer business. Uh, you know, I, I've seen plenty of brewers who made a great beer and failed uh, because they didn't realize that making a great beer is, is step one, and there are about three other steps that you've got to uh, you, you got to take before you're going to succeed. Shelf life is a pretty key issue that we're having now, especially with the competition and the proliferation of not only breweries but the brands under those breweries. One of the things I always do when I land a new, in a new market is look at retail shops. Uh, because, And I've never seen, I think, more small sort of non-specialized businesses carrying beer as I have in New York with the bodegas carrying hundreds of different brands now. Yeah. Uh, some of them busting through a wall so they can put in a beer section. I was walking through the... Um, most of them here in New York seem to be warm shelves as well. They're not, they're not all cooler-based. And I found a Stone Enjoy Buy at a very popular place, uh, a Stone Enjoy Buy 111313, I think it was. Mm. This is a beer that's intentionally named with the date code as part of the brand name so that people know when they're supposed to drink it by. I would uh, just want to add, though, that it's not a function of the beer goes bad in a, it's a, in a, in a consumer, in a beer drinker safety kind of way. Right. Beer can't make you sick. It's a quality thing more it's than a, anything. It's a, it, is it being um, served in its best state? But it makes me wonder if distributors now are not necessarily the biggest challenge to the thing, you know, something like Shelf Life as much as it is the proliferation of retailers as well especially when something's coming as far as the West Coast and you're opening a brewery in the East Coast for some of those reasons. I'm curious as to how much of the retailing side of the business you guys have to get I involved think we're, in. We're constantly in, in, in a learning curve. I mean, the retail wholesalers, distributors, the beer drinkers, in a learning curve always about that freshness matters and that the way you handle craft beers from small brewers, it matters. And if you do a warm shelf or put it in the trunk of your car... In the middle of the summer, for even a couple hours, you're going to cook the beer, and it's not going to taste the way the brewer intended it. And, give you, and it might give you the wrong impression. You may not buy that beer ever again, and it's, but that's not the way it, was in, it left the brewery. So freshness matters, and, and the, in the whole chain of distribution, through distribution, retail, the beer drinker keeping the draft lines clean. I mean, you may have a beautiful beer in that keg, but if the draft line isn't clean... You'll get a sour, funky beer that is just... If you, not what the brewer not intended, Not what the brewer certainly. intended. And I, I would say today the bar is set a lot higher for quality than it was in the 80s. In the 80s, a, a lot of people were very forgiving for some, you know, some pretty 
funky beers that got out there, but people were thrilled to have local breweries and they were very forgiving. That's not the case today. People know what uh, uh, you know an IPA is supposed to taste like and, and they know what a craft beer is, is supposed to taste like. So I think if, if brewers are out there with beers that are not up to par on quality, they're not going to succeed. Yeah, it seems like we've done a great job of creating the consumer we want, but we okay. still have this wide gulf in between, between you know, the many hands that beers go through that are not the brewers to carry that intent all the way to the discerning consumer now. It yeah. seems like that's still an ongoing challenge. And not to, and not to diminish the, the role that the brewer himself has or her has. I mean, small breweries, particularly startup breweries, they, they need to understand what their limits are. I have the enviable position that, my, that when I taste beers, it's, most of the time, it's at the brewery, and it's brewery fresh. It's, ex- it's the freshest it could possibly be. Um, so I'm a little jaded because I'm tasting beers at the brewery. But most people get their beer off of a shelf or in a bar or in a restaurant. And what I'm getting at is small brewers in this day and age need to know their limits and how far away they can export their beer, whether they can get away with exporting it across the street to the restaurant or to the next city, or to the next state, or across the country. The techno- there's technology involved in uh, producing a beer that is stable enough to withstand the rigors of transportation. And you also have to have human effort along that chain as well to be looking at how's our beer doing in these places? Why are we selling beer in a place where they don't clean the draft lines, you know, so it takes a fairly significant investment in that. In the interest of time, I'm going to ask the three people sitting on the floor to come up and one after another ask a question. If you can keep three questions in your head, uh, Michael can help us. Brief questions, good questions, and (laughs) to-the-point questions. Go ahead. No pressure. No pressure. Hey, um, you started to touch upon this at the end of the tasting there. I'm just really interested in like a Colorado take on New York beer. Brewing in the city faces its own very unique set of challenges. So I'm just interested in where you would typically place New York in, in the narrative and what you think about what's happening beer-wise in New York right now. Okay, keep a friendship. Now, next one. <laughs> we'll hold all three questions in our heads here. We'd love to hear a little bit about how you're planning to address... Um, supplying Asia and the Asian market with your beer. That's a huge growing segment. And whether I can translate some of your materials into Chinese. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah, uh, I kind of wanted to know, uh, you know, the movement from IPA, double IPA, the sour uh, revolution, and now session IPAs are becoming very popular. Just kind of what's a style of beer that you particularly like that you think is underserved in the market, you know, as a home brewer? I'm always looking for that. And, and quickly, the, the last fourth question. We'll keep four in our... Oh, boy. I'm, I'm a little bit more familiar with wine, so I'm going to try to make that. Um, in Champagne, you have the big houses that could be compared, and I hope not, nobody hears me, to the big companies because they manage to do those multi-vintage wines that are the same every year. And then you have the grower champagnes that are unique now, we talked about the 2 million raising to 6 million barrels being a craft beer. Now, how do you think raising that barrel, and you probably discussed that, keeps the quality, the effort, the, the little things we talked about right now about, you know, 
putting that effort in having uh, your beer displayed only in a restaurant that takes care of their lines so your beer is tasted like it's supposed to be. And raising that bar to six million, is that going to be... Are you still going to maintain that quality? Okay, answer whatever you remember. Go ahead. (laughs) Well, I got the sense that the one about New York beers was for Charlie and me. More um, for you, even. More for me. Great. Um, I actually am not familiar enough to say a lot about New York beers versus Colorado beers. I would say that... Really? um, I... I've been here since, I, I come here maybe once a year, ah. so we don't sell beer in this market. So I come here to see Steve and Ellen and to do a few industry things now and again um, because I travel for a lot of other things. I think that there are really innovative brewers popping up all over the United States and um, I can only imagine that New York, with this incredible food culture, is really at the forefront of that. You have such a large population base here, and it's underserved with craft beer. The potential, the potential is still enormous. It's one of those markets that still has a lot of room to grow. Yeah. Asia, we don't have capacity, but thank you for the translation help. I think there's a common question in the China, in the China question is how do we get our beer to markets that are served, you know, underserved like that? Do we want our beer there? And it's a similar question a, around capacity. I have when an we get to six million that. barrels, we're in sports bars and you know every other maybe a TGI Fridays. Uh, how do we ensure that we have the best beer and the best experience possible? We will be announcing an Asia project in the next few weeks, uh, but I can't do it tonight. Mm. <laughs> We just wet you know, our that's it, that's it, that's it. Yeah, I'm going to say that. We that's opened a the, uh, the brewery in Sweden a month ago, and uh, uh, we have a, a similar thing that uh, I think will come to light uh, in the next few weeks. And we're so, very excited about that because we've been selling beer in Asia for some time, and it's very difficult to get it there uh, in good condition because, uh, you know, the Panama Canal and the shipping and customs, and uh, it's very uh, difficult to get your product there fresh. So from microbrewer to multinational brewer? Well, uh, I prefer to think of it as uh, a multinational craft brewer. (laughs) (laughs) I'd I'd like to... uh, Do you have another part of any question that you would like to answer? I'd like to at least address that a bit. I... You can imagine I bristle at this a tiny bit because we're on the larger side of things. And um, we are incredibly innovative. um, And we also have invested in enough um, people and technology and intellectual capability to, to really address things like quality. And so I think it's a false choice to say small is inherently great and large is inherently not great. Um, I said earlier that AB, AB InBev and Miller Coors make tex- technically excellent beer. We're in a different space. We're much, much, much smaller. But, you know, we make some of the most highly regarded wood beers in the world. And so... 
I'm not so interested in the, if you get bigger, you can't possibly make good beer. In fact, I would suggest you have enough resources that you can make even better beer. So, but I'm biased, certainly. In, in, um, in closing, I, I hope that all of you will pick up a copy of Steve's fascinating book, um, it taught me everything I know about beer. <laughs> um, so get the craft beer revolution, incredible portraits of individuals, pioneers, uh, second-generation pioneers, third-generation pioneers. In closing, I'd like to ask each one of you how you found yourself to be described in this book. You're both described in this book. You're both characters in this book. And... Um, I might ask the question differently. When the book comes out in paperback, um, <coughs> what changes would you like to see? <laughs> I would not be so foolhardy as to think that I could change anything that Steve decided that he was going to do or not do. And um, I also feel like, you know, we have been very good friends for a very long time, and I totally trust Steve to... Did characterize you find, did, me, flaws and all. Did you, did you recognize yourself in yeah, every... Sure, yeah, sure. All right. My turn? Yeah. Um, you, you have the, the... Well, I've thought about this a bit in that, you know, <laughs> history books are, are stories. They're all, they're, and, it's, and it's someone else's account of what goes on in people's minds and why they made decisions. You never really know but that's what history is. It's a, that's why there's so many books about the same subject. It's, it's different views, different perspectives. And certainly Steve's story and account of history is a valid one from his perspective. And I, I think it's pretty darn accurate um, in, in most ways. Uh, and it's a good, good read. What do you... Well, you know, the epigraph for the book is from Winston Churchill. It is. It is, history shall be kind to me before I intend to write it. <laughs> so I make no bones about it. It's my point of view in that book. And, uh, uh, you know, I hope other craft brewers tell the story. I hope Jim Cook writes his book. And, do you uh, think there's a, there's a chance story. he might? He says he is. Uh, we'll see. He would have a lot of interesting things to write about. <laughs> if, he, if he does write his book, I'll bring you together. I would love to Ooh, do a blurb for it. Let's do that. <laughs> Steve, Charlie, Kim, thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org. <laughs>